Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you to be here with us this morning in this place, and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here in our midst. May my words this morning be your words, and may all of our thoughts be your thoughts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Jeremiah, sent as a prophet to the kingdom of Judah, was almost never happy with them. In fact, he was so unhappy, so regularly, that he is in fact known as the weeping prophet. His prophetic role was to continually call the people and the kingdom to repent of their idolatry, only to see them fail to do so again and again and to eventually incur the wrath of God in their destruction by and exile to the land of Babylon. Indeed, Jeremiah is the author of Lamentations, a book lamenting Judah's continued idolatry and eventual captivity. In fact, the people to whom he was sent were so idolatrous and so often And it is so connected with Jeremiah that there's even a Jeremiah-related meme that I've seen a couple times. You know, one of those classic, biblically faithful apologetics memes that you see going around? This is a a meme that pokes fun of supposed archaeological attempts to disprove the Old Testament stories. So in the top half of the meme, there's an archaeologist saying... Well, actually, it turns out that the Israelites worshipped many gods. And on the bottom, there's Jeremiah weeping, saying, I know, I know. (laughs) Because even though the nation, which had been split in two by Jeremiah's time, was resolutely monotheistic, they kept losing their way and falling into the worship of idols. This is the prophetic life about which we're reading the very beginnings this morning in Jeremiah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then I said, Ah, Lord God, truly, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a boy, for you shall go... To all to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. So God calls Jeremiah into this ministry. And after Jeremiah tries to protest that he could never do such a thing, that he's too young, too inexperienced, not talented enough, whatever, a feeling I think that we all share, God tells him, that not only can he do it, but that he will do it, and that God himself will give Jeremiah the words to say. 
You don't need to be creative, Jeremiah, the Lord is saying. Just tell the people what I tell you to tell them. And then, with the words that I want us to focus on this morning, God tells Jeremiah what the results of his message are going to be. Now, I've put my words in your mouth, says God. Today, I point you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah's words are going to do two different things. They're going to tear down and they're going to build up. They're going to destroy and they're going to create. These two things, destruction and creation, are what the word of God does. In fact, you might say that they are two words, two ways of speaking. And to show you that this is not unique to Jeremiah, in fact, to show you that this is what the word of God always does, the way God always speaks, I want to turn immediately to the New Testament. St. Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, also talks about these two ways in which God speaks. Paul calls them two ministries, but it's just as good to think of them as words. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 to 10. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves, again, echoes of Jeremiah, to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let that stick in your head for a second as I read to you a few more verses. But hear the parallel to Jeremiah chapter 1. The letter kills. The spirit gives life. But let's go on with Paul. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So two ministries, one of the letter written on stone that causes death, and one of the Spirit. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. Because of the glory that surpasses it. Now, that's a thick theological passage, but do you hear how similar it is to Jeremiah's commissioning? The words that Jeremiah has been given to say, Today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. What we have here then even in just these few verses in Jeremiah and alluded to and confirmed by Paul in Corinthians is actually the entire Christian story in microcosm illustrated by the speech of God, how God speaks into the world. And we see that his word comes in two forms, 
a form that was at least once carved in letters on stone, the law, that kills, and a form that is of the Spirit, that gives life. And these two words work together in your life just as Jeremiah used them in the kingdom of Judah to destroy idols and then to rebuild true religion. Okay, so hold on. You might be thinking, there's a word of God that kills? Well, don't shoot the messenger, but you heard it just as clearly as I did. The Lord said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. Pluck up, pull down, destroy, and overthrow. Now, it's perfectly true that God does promise eventually to build and plant, but that's not where the word starts, is it? And we want, don't we, desperately to focus on the building and the planting and to turn a blind eye to the plucking up and the pulling down, the destroying and the overthrowing. The people of God have been making this mistake, focusing on one word and not the other, zeroing in on the building and ignoring the destroying from the very beginning. And we're still making this mistake today. This overlooking, which we might summarize as the desire to overlook God's rules, to jump straight to what we might call his love, is what leads some to the idea that God could never be angry or disappointed, that sin is just some kind of misunderstanding or overreaction. This overlooking is how you get sentiments like love is love and the confusion of love with permission. As in, if you love me, you must permit me to do whatever I want. We don't want God to be in the business of judging, much less destroying. And so we pretend that it never happens. But look at Jeremiah. This weeping prophet knew better than anyone how unfaithful the people of God in Judah were. And he also knew that God was holy. So what was Jeremiah to do? What was loving for Jeremiah? How was Jeremiah to love God's people? Would it have been loving for Jeremiah to tell the kings of Judah that love is love? Love an idol. Love Yahweh. What's the difference? Would it have been loving to grant them permission to worship in whatever way and toward whatever thing they saw fit? No. The loving thing for Jeremiah to do, the actual loving thing, was to go before the king and the people and to speak the truth that God had given him. Tear down your false gods. Repent. Destroy any object of idolatrous worship. This is the first word of God written in letters on stone. This is the law. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the first way God speaks into the world. This hurts. This is the plucking up and pulling down 
the destroying, the overthrowing. And we hate it. But this first word of God, the law, the word that comes in the form of thou shalt and thou shalt not, is doing critical work. It's necessary. It's required. It's preparing the way. It's making space for the second word of God, the ministry of the Spirit, the word that gives life. It's making way for the gospel. In the same way that a farmer must clear the weeds out of a field in order to allow a good crop to grow, our idols must be destroyed in order to make way for true religion that is new creation in Christ. Now, of course, our idols, unlike those in Jeremiah's time, aren't made of wood or stone. Our idols usually live inside our heads and our hearts, but they tell us the same kinds of things that Judah's idols told them. You're doing fine. You're great, just the way you are. Anyone who doesn't accept you doesn't love you. Does this sound familiar? This is the serpent's lie from Genesis 3. Did God really say, shouldn't you be in charge? And it is to combat this lie that God's first and destroying word comes. The first word of God is the doctor giving you an honest diagnosis. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This hurts and no one likes it, but it is the necessary first step on the road to healing. We might even call it a kind of love. Is it loving for a doctor to tell a critically ill patient that they're fine just the way they are? No one wants to hear bad news. It is a ministry of death after all, but it is once the bad news is announced that the healing can come. An accurate diagnosis must precede effective therapy. The cancer of sin must be identified before the proper surgery can be performed. And Jesus is the great physician. Jesus is the ministry that brings life. Jesus is God's second word. Jesus is how God builds and plants. Once the law, that first word of God, has done its work of plucking up and pulling down, of destroying and overthrowing, once it has done its killing work, convincing us that on our own we will die, in fact, that on our own we are dead, it moves aside for God's creative work in Christ. Therefore, Paul wrote to the Corinthians just two chapters after his discussion of the two ministries or words of God. He's now in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But the old must pass away. It must be acknowledged. Sin must be repented and thereby killed before the new comes. Jesus only saves sinners. 
That's it. No one else. When he calls the tax collector Matthew, he makes it clear. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. For this rebirth here, only sinners need apply. Because only they, you and me and everyone willing to confess it, need what Jesus has to offer. And what Jesus has to offer is real love. Not the love is love permissive kind of love, but the God is love, redeeming kind of love. Because this is how God loves. He offers the life of his only son on a criminal's cross as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. God's first word, his holy law, the word that judges us and finds us wanting, was poured out and exhausted on the cross. That's what Paul means when he writes to the Romans that there is now, therefore, no condemnation in Christ Jesus. The law can no longer condemn. It has shown us our sin, and now its work is done. The plucking up and pulling down, the destroying and the overthrowing are complete. The idols, especially the idol of your goodness and immortality, these idols have been destroyed. And now God speaks again. Now, thus says the Lord, to quote Isaiah 43, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, he who made you, sitting in these pews this morning, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And it's really true right now for a sinner like you. Confess that sin. Reaffirm your faith. Feast at the Lord's table. Fear not is God's word to you this morning. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul wrote to the Galatians. Accept that crucifixion for yourself. Once again, or for the very first time. It is no longer I who live, Paul continues, but Christ who lives in me. Let go of your life. Once again, or for the very first time. Let Jesus live in you. And the life I now live in the flesh, Paul exalts, I live by faith. In the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Live your life by faith in Christ. In Jesus, who loves you and gave himself for you. By God's word, the old you is dead. Plucked up and pulled down. Destroyed and overthrown. By God's word and in Christ, 
you are redeemed, built up, and replanted. A new you is alive right now, today, and forever. Amen.